one of the cons of, of that way of thinking about apocalyptic literature is, you know, sometimes the pictures that God draws that are apocalyptic and do have do have metaphorical meaning, sometimes they, they, they grow legs and walk. Welcome to the Stand Firm Podcast. We're recording this episode on Wednesday, December 13th, 2023. I'm Nick Lannon of Grace Anglican Church in Louisville, Kentucky, and I'm here with Matt Kennedy of the Anglican Church of the Good Shepherd in Binghamton, New York, and J.D. Koch of St. Luke's Anglican Church on Hilton Head Island, South Carolina. How are you guys doing today? Great. Great, Nick. Well, I'm the stand firm designated survivor this week. Matt and JD are together on Hilton Head. If if somebody wants to <laughs> take out Hilton Head, stand firm, we'll survive. JD St. Luke's is having an Advent speaker series. Is that right? How's that going? We are. It's going great. Yeah. Ann Kennedy was our second speaker today. She did a wonderful job. And Matt, um, you know, came along for the ride this time, um, although they're known to us because, as you know, this time. Well, not this time, but last summer they came and filled in for us while we were on vacation. So it was it was great. It's been a lot of fun. It's a good week. Is there like an overriding yeah. theme for the whole series? There wasn't really uh, because this one wasn't budgeted uh, for <laughs> in our and so I had to like kind of cobble together uh, friends and favors. Um, and so, um, but we have, and as is I like to do, there's a three part segment to it. It happens to be three weeks. So we had. Uh, it's all online if anyone's interested last week it sort of it sort of worked out that we have kind of christian creatives like either authors or bloggers or people that are sort of um well creating something so we had an author two authors of two children's books the first and the third week and then ann spoke today as someone you know prolific blogger and mm-hmm. podcaster and then she brought her um her devotional which has been redone since the copy yeah. that we have uh which is great and so we sold she sold a bunch of them, and then we we, we bought the rest to sell in our bookstore. So, um, yeah, I think it was a it was a good time. It was had by all. Nobody stood up and walked out. That was my uh, fear in every speaking engagement of my own or of friends. <laughs> so, still batting a hundred there. There. And you Kennedys are enjoying the palm trees. Palmettos, maybe palmettos. That's what I was going for. Yeah, well, my sight is like a palm tree, but different. <laughs> It's the thing in the state seal, right? Yeah. And I just learned the other day, and I'm sure our listener will correct me if I'm wrong, but that thing that's in our state flag is not a moon. I thought it was a crescent moon and a yeah and a palm tree. It's that's actually a thought too. armament. It's like a neck a neck shield armament that like was worn during the revolution or something. Yes. Um, Interesting. Yeah. They like hung down from your helmet to like you know so you couldn't get your head chopped off or at least you know throat inadvertently slit i don't know um i forget the name of it now i probably should google it but i was uh because there's like a whole there was a i ran across some sort of um south carolina pride get behind the state rah-rah um clothing company and that was their symbol so i was like oh interesting i'm sure we'll get something somebody who knows knows about that email me Actually, I'm just going to Google it while you, while y'all talk. <laughs> okay, well, uh, we've decided that it's eschatology time. As our long-term listener may have heard, Matt and JD have occasionally sparred over whether premillennialism or postmillennialism is more biblically accurate, and we've talked several times about needing to finally hash it out. Now, some of that might happen today, but we thought that there was some preliminary business that needed to be attended to first. 
So what we're going to try to do today, though there will certainly be some sparring, is lay out some of the major views so that you, our listener, knows what we're talking about. These are things that not everyone spends a bunch of their time reading about. So the basic question I think that these views are trying to answer is where in relation to the end times are we and where in relation to them does Jesus come? When do things end, etc.? Are the events of Revelation mostly behind us, mostly ahead of us? Are we somewhere in the middle? So we're going to try to present. And it looks like I've got four views on my list here. We'll present some views and try to give some pros and cons of each one. Uh, the first one, I think we can deal with. Wait, before you begin, Nick, yeah. before you begin, it's called a gorget. <laughs> so there you go. Thanks for that interruption. You're welcome. I just thought you'd be interested. Um, sorry, it was going to bother me, and I didn't want to have to. I didn't want to have to. I don't know. I didn't know a better time to interject. So. There was no better time. That was perfect. That's right. So proceed. Well, this first view, I think we can deal with basically just to reject it. It's called full or hyper preterism. And Matt, I wanted to turn to you first. What's that, and what's the problem with that view? So. Uh, yeah, full preterism, uh, full preterists believe that we're not looking forward to some great second coming of Jesus in our, in our future where he comes in person and is in the, in the body that he was raised with, uh, same body that he had during his life, his resurrected body in power and great glory and establishes his kingdom over the earth and, and, and ushers in the eternal state. They, they don't believe any of that will happen in the future. They believe that all of the, all of the predictions of Christ's second coming can be located, the biblical predictions of Christ that can come and can be located in the the sack of Jerusalem by Rome in 70 AD. So everything you read in the Olivet Discourse, for example, they'll say that's all that's all talking about what happened when the Rome Romans invaded and destroyed uh, uh, Israel and then Jerusalem. So this is this is it. This is as good as it gets. Well, maybe it'll get better, but we're not gonna have all the things we look we look forward to, like uh, the new heavens and the new earth, uh, the, the the final resurrection. That's just not not going to happen. Where do they believe Jesus goes? Has gone? Like where does where is he now? Yeah, I, that's a good question. I mean, I, I'm, I'm not an expert on full person. When I read that, I said, okay, well, that's that's uh, there's 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 no these these people have a real hard time reading about you know in fact the more, very often if you get into exchanges these people they 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 tend to be very contemptuous of the other views and i think it does kind of attract people who uh you know like that internet meme the actually <laughs> actually oh, it, does, yeah. it, does, it does kind of attract people who really love that internet meme um <laughs> so. would these full preterists admit that they're not creedal Christians, like they would reject the Nicene Creed, or do they try to interpret it in some other way? I mean, the creeds both, at least the the Nicene and the Apostles' Creed, both talk specifically about looking forward to a kingdom to come. Yeah, from what I understand, the ones I've talked to, they'll say, yeah, we believe that Jesus is coming, but the, but the, the, he, the future hope was not in the creed, but the future hope we see in the scriptures was fulfilled in the apostle, Apostles' future, which was 70 AD, not in the Oh. Not in our future. So, but they, but they, yeah, they would reject an interpretation of the creed. The ones who do accept the creed but it would, it would reject an, uh, an interpretation of the creed that would put his coming in our future. And which seems uh, like what they meant at Nicaea, at least. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. 
you have to really be acrobatic and you have to do some some ama- amazingly imaginative cartwheels and and uh, gymnastics to to fit all of the eschatological texts we have into mm-hmm. that one event. I think if any of our listeners are pool preterists, please feel free to come on and explain. We'll give you yes. the whole show. Explain your your viewpoint because it sounds. Um, it is a heresy. Well, so. <laughs> <laughs> Matt will call you not a Christian. That's sort of his thing. That's right. <laughs> so before we get to your two preferred view, at least currently preferred not, views, which are pre pre uh, and post millennial. Slandered. Let's, let's talk about amillennialism a little bit. This well, that's is... what I what's I am what I was as of yesterday or okay. five minutes ago. So that's uh well why don't you tell us a little bit about not... what amillennialism is then? Well, um, you know, again, just full disclosure, I mean I don't you know, Anglicans I mean, I spent most of my um sort of intense theological study around the doctrine of justification, my faith and law and gospel of this these sort of eschatological concerns were out there, but, you know, the joke, as we made before, is that I was a pan-millennialist to all pan out in the end, you know, so it's mm-hmm. only become somewhat recent that I've found some interest in this, and it has to do with the fact that I have um, I've been asked to and have been reluctant to and have yet to to agree to teach a Bible study on the book of Revelation, because I have, um, I have, I don't know, I didn't know exactly what I thought about it, and it, I wasn't forced to, it's not a 39 article about it, and there's, it's a you know, wasn't wasn't a foundational Reformation position was was taken on this, or at least as far as Anglicans go. Correct me if I'm wrong, listener, but at any rate, that's why that's why I'm sort of holding these lightly. So that was my qualification. But as far as I understood, amillennialism, it was simply the that the the millennium was a figurative. You know, thousand years was like saying, you know, I haven't seen you in ages. You know, mm-hmm. sort of a metaphor of sorts, and the millennium was just the time. Uh, the long time between Jesus's um, uh, ascension and his coming again, the tribulation uh, was not a specific period of time, but is is the situation within which believers are called to live. You know, and and, it, and of course you can point to each epoch of human history within churches has, has existed and pick out particular Christians who must have thought they were going through what if this isn't the great tribulation, then what is? You know, that must. And so there's you know, so that made sense. You know, with respect to uh, the devil, you know, he's partially bound, but he wasn't certainly didn't seem to be fully bound. And if he is, well, then it also begs the question, you know, well, what is what will it look like when he's if this is him, if this is him partially bound, I don't want to see what full unbounding looks like. And then um, the real position that amillennialism allowed has allowed me to take in good conscience up until recently was that with respect to the specifics of the book of revelation you could read them as sort of general images and and realities of good and evil and the ultimate victory of christ and you had the tribulation and the kind of a it was this grand kind of um allegorical um word you know painting that was um, full of of dark and light and good and evil. and But ultimately, you know, the message of Revelation was that God wins, you know, and we have wiped away every tear from our eyes and things like this. And so, you know, again, I don't want to say that it's the, it's the um, lazy position, because obviously a lot of very thoughtful, very rigorous um, preachers and theologians have held to it. I, I do appreciate the, um, the cons to that, which is that, um, as you pointed out, Nick, and some some resources you sent us, it does it does seem a stretch to say that Revelation is just sort of a giant 
you know, book about generally speaking, uh, you know, John went to a lot of detail with an awful lot of Old Testament and uh, how imagery many eyes and things have. And yeah. yeah, I mean, it's like it seems incredibly specific and thought through for it to have no kind of actual ending in time significance. And so I think that's I think that's been a pretty good challenge to my ignorance of the matter, which has brought this question to the fore for the past year or so for me, two years. As, as I understand it, though, you know, not all, I mean, amillennialists are expecting, of course, a second coming, right? So so they, they're not like preterists, they're not full right. preterists, they believe. Right. They, they believe. Right. So, right. So, so they're not, they don't think all of the language is, is figurative and all right. the language. Something's going to happen. Right. right. So I think, I think right. maybe they, they, it's kind of typological, like, these are the, like you say, these are the struggle. These are typi- these typify the kinds of struggles the church is going to have during the era when Christ is reigning in the kingdom and, right. and the devil is is restrained, and then it's going to get worse toward the end, and and then the king is going to come, and and all of that language then finds its fulfillment in his 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 second. That's time. right. Yeah. yeah. No. No. I, I, I yeah. should have prefaced. I think our millennialism certainly falls within the non-heretical understanding right. of the he will come again in glory to judge the living and the dead, and I think. You know, again, I'm no, I'm, I'm not an expert on this. Which I, I feel, I feel inadequate to talk about it, which is why we're, why I keep qualifying it. Um, but I do know that there has been, you know, that is a sort of a generalized Anglican position, or at least as far as I can tell. Um, you know, and and so, you know, we're in good stead there. Uh, but the question remains, you know, is there more to uh, the Book of Revelation than you know general kind of fulfillment? And you know. To put it from a pastoral perspective, you know, you I have found the general um, interpretation of Revelation, both from the the kind of the various depiction of the ch- churches under judgment, all the way to the final wedding feast of the Lamb and everything in between, to be very helpful fodder for teaching and preaching. You know, certainly around um, funerals and well, and particularly funerals. You know, these are these are um, uh, sort of great evocative images, and so I, I don't think that. I think that one could hold a millennial position and and see a lot of fruit from it. I mean, one thing we're going to run into with with all millennialism, all millennialism, and I think post millennialism as well, and that's the that's the in some millennialist case, not all, and some post millennialist case, not all. Um, they do seem to take apocalyptic language, and in some ways, say it's just apocalyptic language, like. Mm-hmm. So, for example, I, I think R.C. I, I don't remember if R.C. Sproul was a a post-millennialist or an amillennialist. He's one of the one of the two. But if you read his, um, but he was definitely a preterist, and and by that I don't, I mean um, he really wasn't a full preterist. He was just, he was a right. partial preterist. Um, and so, if you read his book on the end times, quote unquote, um, he does a lot of work trying to shove, uh, you know, the, the language of the Olivet discourse into seventy A.D. Um, because of its apocalyptic character. And I think a lot, of, I mean, I, and I think that um, the, one of the cons of, of that way of thinking about apocalyptic literature is, you know, sometimes the pictures that God draws that are apocalyptic and do have, do have metaphorical meaning, sometimes they, they, they grow legs and walk, right? So, so for example, the, in Isaiah thir- 13, where Isaiah is prophesying the, the destruction of the Babylonian Empire, and he talks about the falling of the stars from the sky and the sun going black and the, the moon ceasing to give its light. Then Jesus takes up that language in the Olivet Discourse, and, and when he's talking about the sun will go dark, the moon will cease to shine, the stars will go dark, go, go fall, 
and then the Son of Man will come in power and great glory. So because in Isaiah 13, that's talking about the Babylonian Empire, and just talk about the earth being shaken by political events, a lot of people want to say, well, in Matthew 24, Jesus is only talking about the earth being shaken and, and apocalyptic events, uh, I mean, and uh, political events. So that that's why it can only be about <laughs> the fall of the temple. But, you know, just a week after, or less than a week after Jesus, you picked up the Isaiah 13 language to talk about the temple, quote unquote, and, and other things, I think. What happened? Well, he was crucified, and during the crucifixion, the sun went dark, stars were giving the light, and the moon would light. So, so I think people who want to interpret apocalyptic as merely apocalyptic, and I would include, again, both millennials and, and post-millennials, and this need to be really careful about that, because we've already seen many examples of those that language, again, walking and being fleshed out in reality. Well, why don't you continue on then and say a little bit about and I know that there's a lot to be said, perhaps more about this view in particular than the other ones, because the premillennial view has several potential subheadings underneath it. But for the for the sake of our listener and the simplicity of a conversation, how would you explain what a premillennial view of the end times is? It's very grounded in Revelation 19 and 20, where you have Jesus returning, described in, in Revelation 19, and then a reign of a thousand years uh, in which the devil is bound and Christ rules over all the world. Um, and then you have at the end of that period, uh, a release of the, of the devil from his captivity, a new rebellion, and then the establishment, you know, Jesus establishing the eternal state. It does seem to be, I mean, just the way it reads, it seems kind of sequential. It does seem like, it, it, it does seem... Uh, hard to to fit that chronology into any of the other views about about the end time. So uh, premillennials, I think, take that as their as their touchstone that there's going to be this millennial kingdom that exists after Jesus returns. Hence and, the name, right? Jesus comes yeah. before the millennium, premillennial. Exactly, exactly, and then and then um, it's not the eternal state yet because well, one thing or one thing premillennials are also trying to figure out is you have that language in Isaiah 66, for example, about if you die at a hundred, you'll be considered young. If you, and, and that, that language from Isaiah 66 is used uh, in the New Testament sometimes to refer to the, the coming age. So premillennials are trying to account for how there can still be death in a, in a, in a time when the kingdom of God is established. And they think the answer to that question is, is taking Revelation chapter nineteen and twenty is as a as a real a real accounting of how history is going to unfold, um, and not metaphor, not just meta- metaphor. So there's a, within the within premillennialism, there's a subset. There's there's the reason why I think premillennialism has, has met on has met with hard times lately is because within premillennialism, there's a subset of premillennialists who most of our listeners be familiar with the out of this school of thought came the left behind series um, of books uh the the late great planet earth um came from the subset and this subset has um has to do with the question of the rapture which is this the moment jesus returns uh we're told in first thessalonians 4 those who are in the grave will be raised and their bodies will be changed from mortal to immortal. Those who are alive, who are Christians, will be lift, carried up with them in the air to meet Jesus. Their bodies also being changed from mortal to immortal. 
Um, traditionally, in, in premillennialist circles, that's been understood to be just the meeting of the church, the, the greeting of, of Christ by the church at his actual coming to establish his kingdom. And then you just go, they, if they if they do actually meet him in the air, they're just coming right back down and there's going to be a kingdom. <laughs> uh, right, right? So, so, um, <laughs> so but for, but for this, this subset, well, there, there's a, there's, there's not just a second coming, there's a third coming. coming. The first coming is, is the rapture that takes place not at, his, at the time he's coming to establish his kingdom. Right. It comes, it happens right before the great tribulation. Um, and the church is going to escape the torment of the, of the great tribulation because Jesus is going to take us all up. We're going to escape that, that trouble. Um, and then the Antichrist is going to come and there'll be seven years of this great tribulation the temple in, in jerusalem is going to be rebuilt yeah nikolai carpathia yeah. we know his name yeah, right. we know, even uh, know his name <laughs> watch right. out for that guy <laughs> well you've got to have the temple rebuilt because they they interpret second thessalonians 2 where paul talks about the the, the godless the man of uh the, the man lawlessness. Of lawlessness right entering the temple of god and taking his seat there and claiming to be god and so how, how can that happen unless there's uh, there's a temple to, to sit in. Of course, Luther would say, well, that temple is the church because Jesus, because Paul is talking about, he's, that's how he talks about the temple. Of course, um, Luther, but, of course, Luther also said that the Pope was Antichrist. Right, <laughs> right, 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 right. So now, see now, so so the reason I said there's three comings is Jesus comes first to take his church up to heaven or up to the air, wherever they, wherever it is, they're going to be in the, in the, during the rapture period. Hmm. And then he comes back down after the seven-year period to destroy the beast and the, and the dragon. Then he establishes his, his thousand-year reign. Then the, the, the dragon's unchanged after a thousand years, and the same pre-millennial pre uh, scheme is worked out. Uh, I mean, you mentioned, and in, in, out offline, you mentioned that one of the problems with pre-millennialism is it sees everything as, as future. Uh, tends to futurize everything in Revelation and futurize everything in the Olivet Discourse. And I think that's, that's based, that is kind of true, especially for that subset of premillennials. I would say that, that the more sophisticated, the historic premill people recognize that in the Olivet Discourse, there's a lot, yes, Jesus is talking a lot about Rome and the, yeah. the sack of Jerusalem. And that, yes, in Revelation, there's a lot of it that's there for the readers of that day. And, and they, they even take you know, yeah, there can be some recapitulation here, some typology here. Yeah, yeah. It's an unfortunate um, word choice, but that view is often referred to as progressive premillennialism. Like mm -hmm. that you have truths for now that progress on into the future. Interesting. So, J.D., it seems like another one of the potential pros of this premillennial view is that it does deal with what seems like the worldwide scope of revelation, whereas some of the amillennial, and as we'll talk about in a second, post-millennial views want revelation to be basically about Jerusalem and Israel and what happens there around the time of the destruction of the temple, whereas a premillennial view takes what do seem to be worldwide images in revelation and have them affect the entire world. Is that something that you find compelling one way or another? Well, I think, you know, if you're arguing perhaps from a post-millennial standpoint, you could say that just like the occasional aspects of some of the letters in the New Testament um, were written to their specific context, that the Lord has preserved them for a reason to be used um, throughout the, the universal church in perpetuity um, in ways that 
that he knew would be used, although obviously the hearers of the first like letter to the church in Galatia didn't know that I would be using that in um, St. Luke's to edify them 2,000 years ago um, with similar context, if not the exact um, parallels, you know, weren't really dealing with a lot of influx of people clamoring for circumcision. So, you know, I think you could, I mean, I, I think that's a that's an interesting point to, to reflect on because um, if is often an argument that the uh, destruction of the temple was the pivoting and defining point that John was was uh, alluding to um, and and warning his readers about, however clandestinely through his you know use of imagery, well then um, you know obviously I haven't really again this is something that's showing my ignorance of the issue. Want to know what in what ways if you did believe that the revelation was primarily about the forthcoming uh, destruction of the temple and the final judgment on the old covenant and then the um, establishment of the new, what use does revelation have in a sort of a preaching or teaching, you know, role other than, you know, kind of a historical um, uh, exposition, which, which is edifying also, because, you know, if the, if that's, if that's your, your way of understanding revelation, well, then it, it, at least, in, in certain capacities could further strengthen your understanding of, of the inerrancy and authority of scripture, you know, the reality of prophecy and and the divine nature of the, of the writings and so on and so forth. So, yeah, I think, I think that's how I would at least reflect on it initially. I think that it's, there's a grand scope to both premillennialism and postmillennialism that is attractive. I think there's an urgency and a fervency that is uh, slightly different in terms of its um, understanding of the current events, but nevertheless has provided a sort of an engine for for Christian devotion and piety, uh, I think, which is um, to be commended both of the positions in that respect. It's interesting the comparison to an occasional letter of St. Paul to the church where if you just read the letter on the plain reading, it seems like it's trapped in time perhaps to a certain group of people in a certain place who are dealing with a certain issue. And we're sort of as the modern church enlarging it, whereas the, the potential problem with ah uh, or post millennialism that premillennialism seems to solve is that the language of revelation is not small. It's huge. Like the whole world, this and every nation that, and these other views seem to want us to say, well, when he says the whole world, he really means the 12 tribes. Right. I hear what <laughs> you're saying about the authority of scripture sort of working through time. And I like that. It does seem like the Pauline example is a broadening rather than a shrinking. I mean, uh, yeah, it's, a, it's a kind of trick that happens with Again, Bill Gomez, the all of that discourse where, where Jesus says, if God had not cut those days short, no no flesh would have survived. Like he that does that just doesn't fit the destruction of Jerusalem unless you add words to the text. Like if Jesus says, if God hadn't cut those days short, no flesh in Jerusalem would have <laughs> would have uh, survived. But that's not but you that the language of that of that section in particular is worldwide in scope. I mean, the, right after that, the, the elector were being gathered from all the four corners of the earth. Well, let's define, as we have the other views, let's go ahead and define post-millennialism as it seems like we're about to start sort of perhaps discussing it more particularly. Um, since I gave Matt the chance to define premillennialism, J.D., why don't you, um, what's your elevator 
description of what postmillennialism is? Well, um, you know, using one of the classic texts that the postmillennialists I um, read or listen to point to is the Great Commission where Jesus at his ascension says, all authority on heaven and earth has been given to me. You know, go ye therefore and baptize the nations uh, or disciple the nations, you know, baptizing them in the name of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. And lo, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And so, you know, given that statement there, all authority has been given to him, then, and he's ascending, and then pointing to the, uh, until the nations are made of his footstool, you know, indicating that there would ultimately be a time when the, the, the victory would be consummated or, or fulfilled that we are now living in a time where he is reigning um, and under his reign, the commission that he gave the church will in fact uh, be fulfilled. And so until the nations are brought into discipleship, until they are baptized, until the, the church has expanded so, so far that the gates of hell have not prevailed against it, well, then we are living in, well, the end times essentially, but the end times will ultimately be, be seen when the final enemy, which Paul talks about in First Corinthians uh, 15, of death, uh, will finally be the last thing to be defeated. And so death will continue, the church will continue to grow until the final enemy is defeated. And that will be the, I guess, I guess that's when the new heavens and the new earth is finally kind of rolled out. Um, is, is that fair enough to say, Matt? I mean, that's kind of the the general um, scope of it, you know, and then, then, so as a result of that, you know, there, there is an optimism that has it in part uh, turned, you know, when it's not cruciform. Now we're getting, well, let's, let's just stick with evidence because I have some yeah, thoughts yeah. about, about some of that, uh, but that, that's at least what I understand now. In, so the, and... the, the events of revelation are largely about Jerusalem in 70 AD. And another distinction that I'm really only realizing now between the the three major views that we've talked about is the status of satan right in amillennialism he's sort of partially bound in premillennialism the world is like it is now because he is not bound and in a postmillennial view he is bound and jesus reigns even now is that right he's gradually being bound right yeah, I mean, it seems like, like mostly, right? mostly bound. <laughs> right. But, well, I thought I, my understanding yeah, of it is like gradualism, right? It's like it's gradual, right? So, so over time, Satan okay. is increasingly bound, and over time, the church is increasingly. I'm sure that there's. Well, I'm sure there is an exponent of that in right, addition to the fully bound, mostly yeah. bound. The um, other thing that we haven't actually said out loud yet, which is certainly the case, is that within these views, there are innumerable variations there are going to be so, individuals who will argue for it, a shading of one way or another from my understanding maybe I'm, jd correct me if i'm wrong like the, the traditional kind of post-millennialism that goes back to maybe the puritans and some some puritans was yeah, that, Murray, was that the church would succeed in ushering in the millennium and then there'd be a, a thousand years or a long period of time of total peace before jesus came back whereas i think now the more modern version, and you know, again, correct me if I'm wrong, is it's the millennium. Is, <laughs> they have a they have a more they have a more amillennial view of the millennium in the, in the sense that it's like it's a gradual oncoming. Yeah, like we're taking it, the millennium to yeah. Christianize the world. And then when it gets and when it gets here, that's when Jesus is going to come. When it when, turn when key it, earth. 
turn yeah, yeah. earth. <laughs> that's right. That's right. I've been waiting the whole well, podcast to say turn to I mean, earth. Can we get to the? I mean, so here's here's the 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 real question. Matt and I were talking about this last night. For me, is that there's so often these arguments are put forth. You know, the one there's the exegetical argument, and I think you have to take that obviously very seriously. And I, you know, I think there has been serious work done. Um, you know, both sides disparage the others like weak exegesis. But there are some serious scholars who have gone, you know, done some rather rigorous work. And, you know, I've read in them, haven't read exhaustively all of them, but I don't I don't think and again, may, this might get an email back. I don't think it's safe to say that there is a slam dunk exegetical argument one way or the other for whether or not you should be postmillennial or premillennial like that. I know that obviously I'm going to get a someone sitting there sure. spilling their coffee or whatever. <laughs> but, you know, it's in, in my opinion. It seems to be a situation not not unlike, it's not exactly like, but not unlike the scriptural warrants for infant baptism, in that you have significant ramifications of whether or not you believe in it or not. But there is also significant ambiguity, or at least exegetical ambiguity, that requires additional, we well, well you can say systematic theological considerations rather than simply, quote-unquote, exegetical, or, or quote-unquote, simply exegetical, excuse me. Yeah. So that's kind of how I've been approaching it for a long time. And it's not surprising to me that a lot of this renewed interest um, in post-millennialism has come at the end of Christendom, or at least what seems to be the end of sort of Western Christendom, you know, that we have been given the challenge of living through um, because it, it was the, the amillennial or pre-millennial view it seemed to be, uh, well, let's put it this way, it was not as urgent to hold on to when you still had a genuinely Christian magistrate, you know, your genuinely Christian framework within which you were living. Because, you know, if things were getting worse, or if, as some of the people argue, the disciple of the nations was really about the individuals in the nations and not the nations themselves, well, if you're standing within an uh, ostensibly Christianized nation, well, then you could make that argument. But if you're standing in the middle of a pagan nation, you know, like missionaries have and will con well, will continue to, and maybe perhaps we will, or we are, well, then the idea that the gospel will actually transform the nations themselves, like beginning with hearts, yes, but then expanding into laws and, and governors and ultimately transform the civilization into, a, into the uh, a Christian nation uh, is much more urgent uh, and much more seemingly the, the point than, uh, than not. And I and so I think that's where that's sort of how what it, part of my thinking is that you know I have Christian missionary bishops um, friends of mine in parts of deeply pagan uh, parts of the world who are expecting they're not they're not hoping that maybe individuals will get saved they're hoping that the individuals who are part of various um, towns and cities and countries will not only get saved but then redirect their Christian salvation towards the the creation of godly magistrates and 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 you know biblical laws and all sorts of things and that is a impetus that is fueled explicitly by a post-millennial viewpoint albeit one that should be tempered always under the shadow of the cross you know cruciform millennialism however you call it but that we should you know the, the flip side of not expecting christians to see the culture transformed as more people become christian is part of the under underbelly of the 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 scolding that we see going on when perhaps like for instance speaker johnson you know says i'm gonna 
you know, my worldview is the Bible. And you have heads explode everywhere, even in quote unquote Christian, some Christian circles, quote unquote, because um, because with an amillennial or a premillennial view, it can be, it doesn't have to be, but it can be a excuse to withdraw from political engagement, which is, in my opinion, um, laying down the means by which we show love for our neighbor, particularly in, in our context. And, and, and that's just something that I reject, whatever you want to call it, whatever you want to call it. So, you know, if you can stand with John Winthrop, you know, of, in Plymouth Rock and say um, America can be can be um, a shining city on a hill, you know, and then expect if it were, in fact, suffused with Christian virtues and led by Christian leaders who feared God more than man, that it possibly could be. Now, whether it has been or is, it's another question, but whether it could be, well, then I don't care what you call yourself because I stand with you and trust that the more Christians involved in a society, the better. And if that's the case, then, then you know, 100% of Christians in a society is going to be, well, pretty close to what it's supposed to look like in the first place. I think the idea that, and I'm not denying that right now in our present moment, those who are, many of those who are pre-millennialists are on the anti-Christian nationalist side, right? They're, they're saying we're going to lose or we're not going to win. So... So I can see how you're saying that. However, I would say that historically, for example, Christendom <laughs> was founded by people who were primarily amillennial in their viewpoint, right? That the, that the establishment of Christian kingdoms and nations wasn't driven primarily by post-mill people. That was an amill dominant world in Europe in the Middle Ages and the in those days. So, so I, I wouldn't want to say that amillennialism is not a or, or premillennialism is not is not a uh, is not a is is con is counter to the idea of taking the nation. In fact, like the the people behind the left behind series, who I disagree with vehemently about the about the the pre trib that that little subset of millennialism, those guys were super politically active. I mean, I mean, all of the all of the 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 moral majority type people, the 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 eighties nineties, really strong conservative Christian people. Those are all pre millennial. You know, people who believe in the rapture is coming yeah, and, and they were trying to get the yeah yeah so so i don't think it's necessarily true that that either amillennial or premillennial necessarily breeds an apolitical yeah you know, we shouldn't be involved in getting our hands dirty i mean there's these they've been except for dirty. the fact except for the fact that the the one of the major objections often levied at postmillennialism by the left and the right or the conservative and the progressives is that they become too this worldly focused, which always means something like they're trying to quote unquote legislate our morality or, you know, get involved in the um, school boards or something because they have, you know, immunitized the eschaton and believe that if they can bring in the kingdom here, that somehow that will be, you know, they will, they'll help usher in faster. And so it, again, I'm with you. I mean, I would love to see a little bit like our conversation last week, like the, you know, show me an optimistic premillennialist who believes in the rapture. And, you know, and a postmillennialist who, you know, who are going to vote together to hopefully get the school board to be Christian so that they don't have porn in the library. Uh, then I think you sort of lock arms and you say, well, one of us is going to be, you know, really surprised. We'll change our minds in the air. Raptured or not. <laughs> That's right. Like I hope, Because I, again, I don't think it's a salvation issue. I mean, I think the full preterism seems to be, you know, not like something that you right. should be very aware of. If you're hearing that in your church listener, you're probably, well, you should find another church. But as for the other three, I mean, I think that the the vagaries and the sort of nuances, you know, um, are such that 
what I'm more concerned about and, and which has been part of the interest that I've shown is how, how does this motivate you? You know, does yeah. it demotivate you or does it motivate you? And so, you know, I had a friend, for instance, back in a church in Germany whose mother had um, been so uh, influenced by dispensational, you know, this sort of the end of the world that she didn't teach him to read. I mean, until, cause she was like, what difference does it make? Cause the world's ending in six years. So, you know, let's, I mean, I mean, now that's him explaining it as a sort of jaded, you know, adult. So I'm not sure if it was that explicit, but, but that was kind of a obvious, you know, example, a negative example of how you can understand that. But of course, you know, like you just pointed out, Matt, I mean, there, there's some strange bedfellows with respect to what's exactly going to happen at the end of time. I mean, look at Kurt Cameron, although Kurt Cameron, I think of left behind fame, if I if if the little Facebook group that I'm a part of is any indication, I think he actually has rejected dispensationalism and become a post millennialist. Now, Kirk, if you're listening, um, let us know. Uh, <laughs> We'd love to have you on the show. <laughs> that's right. So, um, but that's where I think you know I I don't want to be, and you know, this whole podcast is very suspicious of nuance and sort of both and uh, winsome middle wayism or whatever. But really, at the end of the day. It's a little bit like, I was thinking about this, it's like W.H. Griffith Thomas, you know, the guy who wrote the commentary on the prayer books. If you read the introduction to his prayer book, the 39 articles, Introduction to Theology, he says, you know, he says there's a lot of fighting on about in the church today between the high church party and the evangelical low church party. And he says, you know, if anyone holds to, to Article 6 and Article 20 and, and evinces a robust faith, uh, spiritual faith, well, then I don't care really what they call themselves. And, and I don't want to minimize, you know, the differences or, or sort of, you know, I mean, there are people that have written their PhDs on this who are head, you know, heads would explode if you said, well, it's, it's not that important because I think it is important. But at the end of the day, I think the main thing is which one is driving you to the, the confident uh, realization that, um, Jesus is reigning. I mean, that's biblical and that he ultimately will win and that his purposes will be fulfilled and his providential hand will not be thwarted. And, you know, under the shadow, through the shadow of the cross, you can see how, as I said before, you know, the um, people in the in the gladiatorial arenas getting eaten by lions, you know, they had this confident hope um, and the people sitting in, around them watching them certainly didn't think that within you know, just a couple hundred years that one of those kingdoms would still be in existence, i.e. the kingdom of God. And that's the that's the hope that we're looking for. So if you're optimistic pre-mill, you know, post, what would be pre-trib optimistic pre-mill would be the best <laughs> pre-millennialist to be, you know, in my opinion. So that's, count me that. But if you want to be a cruciform post-millennialist, um, I don't really see a big difference between the two because what that means is that you will preach boldly, you'll expect conversion, you'll see lives changed, and you'll watch the restoration, this side of heaven, not fully, but partially, of the reconciliation that comes through the mercies of God in Christ. And so that's what we, you know, that's what we're expecting to see. And so the, you know, for every bad headline, there's another good headline, you know, I mean, the fact that there's, there's penicillin and running water, and half the world's people have been brought up out of a poverty in the past 20 years and you've got you know optimism you know extended life spans for people and so on and so on and so forth are not necessarily markers of post-millennial reality but they are signs of of hope even amidst all of the the evil and darkness and depravity of the world that's sort of where i am with it and i'm still reading in it and i'm i'm grateful actually that our church is not defined by its millennial views because i think it would be somewhat uh straightjacketing a little bit and i think you we would have we wouldn't have the the, the genuine sense of um 
a breadth and theological diversity that we have, which can be, you know, a positive thing um, when it's still biblical. And so I think that's the main, the main interest that I have now is how do these guys defend? That's why our full preterist guy who needs to get out of his church, come on, come on the show and tell us how this makes sense biblically, because I've read through enough of the other ones to at least say, well, they got a point. Now they have, you know, every position has, um, has its detractors and therefore it's, you know, it's, it's, um, conversation exegetical conversation but um but that's what we're doing what's what we're having now and that's what we're part of i look forward to seeing it um continue to unfold yeah i mean i think i mean, i agree with a lot of that i think you know one thing that we should keep in mind is that people had a pretty uh, pretty set understanding of eschatology when jesus showed up the first time and and one of the reasons they didn't recognize them is because they were expecting something completely different um and they yeah, were all wrong point. Right. So, so, so now no one's going to mistake his coming his second time. Of course, right. when he comes this time, we're all going to know that he, everyone's going to see and know who he is. At the same time, because the best minds were so wrong <laughs> the first time around, we shouldn't expect that the second time around we're suddenly going to be brainiacs and get and, and get the whole thing right before he shows up. The thing that we need to remember is he is coming back, and uh, and however and whenever that takes place, we as Christians have have this one command is to you know to watch out and 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 to be waiting eagerly for it uh not watch out because he's coming to judge you if you're a believer you've already been judged but but watch out because when he comes it's going to be the greatest day of your life you're going to be free of sin and death and um and the world will be set free from all of the everything that ails it amen well Thank you for listening to Stand Firm. I hope you enjoyed this conversation. We did have some significant technical issues with this show, so we'll have to do the best that we can to cobble it together. Um, we do appreciate you listening, though. If you want to keep the conversation going with us, you can be in touch, rate and review the podcast on iTunes, send us an email at mailbag at standfirminfaith.com, or you can join the Anglicans for the Gospel Facebook group. Thank you to J.D. Koch and Matt Kennedy. I'm Nick Lannon. I don't think we're sure yet about next week. It's getting awfully close to Christmas, but we'll see. Until then, by the grace of God and Jesus Christ, we'll be standing firm. Oh, 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 o